Dreamnasium. Welcome to the <laughs> second commentary for Dreamnasium, this time for The Dame Wore a Tesseract. <laughs> I am, once again, your co-writer, co-producer, Jeffrey Bridges, here with... Susan Bridges, co-all of those things. <laughs> and the originator of these fine stories, Mr. Jeffrey Thorne. Hello. The Dame Wore a Tesseract. Part one. Well, you're already laughing. You I don't laughing know why. It's the title. I don't know why. It's a great title. It, it is a me. fun title. I mean, once you know the story, it kind of gives away the twist at the end. Yes. But Why do you say that right now? Because everyone's listen. already heard it. Well, They've okay. already missed it. Anyone who's here right. getting spoilers, it's your own fault. That's Too bad. True. Okay. That is your fault. You shouldn't be here now if you we haven't listened to the you, show. blame you, audience. That's right. That's right. It's your own fault. Go okay. back and listen to the show. Didn't you say you wrote this originally for some other Yeah, there was a a thing that I had written. There was uh, another sort of, not an anthology series, but like, uh, there's a company called Serial Box that does this now. But years ago, there was one guy, uh, I forget the name of the company, it was like Paradox or Parallax or something, they're gone now. But an uh, ex-editor at uh, Simon Schuster started it. And basically he came up with this idea, I'm going to, farm out the actual stories but I, I own the concept hmm. and it was these people running around doing stuff it's some, it's a basic sci-fi concept that interdimensional agency that runs from reality to reality doing stuff teams of agents going against whatever it's just an excuse to tell weird ass science fiction stories um, but uh, I wrote more for them than they bought um, and since it's not an original concept, this is a hint to writers out there. If someone has a proprietary uh, an IP, essentially, but it's one of these things where they're farming out piecework, where you're writing a chapter or you're writing one story based on Superman, doesn't X-Men, doesn't and they don't ultimately buy one thing that you've completed. Um, if your story is not so heavily invested in their universe as all that, which a lot of my stories are very wide swings away from whatever the core of a given IP is, um, it's pretty easy to do what we call filing the numbers off, where you just basically remove all those elements that are owned by somebody else, do a quick pass to rewrite elements that don't make sense unless, like, this can only take place in the DC universe. Really? Okay. And you just take those bits out, and all of a sudden it doesn't take place in the DC universe. You'll also find that it opens you up to a wider range of concepts a lot of times. Where, because you're in someone else's universe, you're limited in some ways too. So you'll get whole long swaths of chapter writing, or you know, uh, sections of story that could not have existed until you did this. But now that they did, you can fill in a blank with your own thing. And so, I like the base concept of inter- the interdimensional agency that jumped from reality to reality. There was a show called Sliders, mm-hmm. I think, years ago that yeah. that that's some version of that. Quantum Leap doesn't always do that. It's mostly time travel, but it occasionally flipped. You know, obviously Star Trek occasionally went into. Yeah, it's it's not like it's a brand new original science fiction concept. But I just couldn't leave it alone. So the day more Tesseract. (laughs) I mean, 
This one, uh, I think when we first read it, was the, I think the first one that we picked to do for the show because it seemed, it just lent itself to audio so much with the, the voiceovers and the, the noir feel and yeah. the sax music. <laughs> and we're like, this one, it's going to sound, it already, it reads like it's an audio thing. It yeah. just sounds like it's made for, you could hear all of that right in the in the prose. And so the great thing too is we got to pull big chunks of your prose to use for the sort of voiceover narration so we could get work a lot more of that in there because it could be a little more flowery. When right, you just, absolutely. In this particular case yeah, that, that, that and, and you'll know like one of the things I had a sort of an oversight role in this case uh, where they would send me scripts and I'd sort of make notes and little tiny tiny little like maybe not this or why don't you do this little 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 sort of surgical thing um, but my biggest comment as we said in one of the earlier uh, uh, in the earlier uh, what do you call it, commentaries is I didn't want them to do sort of a one-to-one just lift out a chunk of text and be nice to me and put it into this audio thing. Just really right. Really right, guys. And in this case, as Jeff said, there were places where that wasn't the necessary thing to do because of the nature of this particular story. It's meant to feel like a 1940s radio play, even as a story or a 1940s movie right, right. as a story. So that language is snappy and people don't really talk like that. You go back and watch Casablanca and like, you love it, but afterwards you're like, try to talk to people like that. It doesn't, it doesn't actually work. It's a stylized way of relating. But it has to be... This is what we're talking about in the other commentary about finding the right voice when you're doing an adaptation. Every story, every piece has its own voice. And you're sort of making a promise to the audience, this is a world, come into this world, here's how this world works, we're going to play by the rules we establish. And that's everything from gravity works to how people speak to each other. One of the things, for instance, that doesn't translate into audio is in the story, this alternate world that they live on is literally a black and white world. Right, it looks like a 1940s movie. Everything's washed out, right? So when they talk about the blue ocean and all that, there's bits in the story where there's a couple of lines in the story where it's clear they're wandering around in a 1940s movie because you can't see it, right? And never occurred to me that we would do what we've done with it. But um, if it had ever been made into a film, a lot of that language would go away because the audience would be seeing what the what the characters are seeing. They go, oh, weird. Okay, let's go, right? So. This was a thing where, again, good writing, good adapta- good adapting, ad- adaptive writing is suiting your skill set to the piece, not going in with, here's how you do it right, everything gets done the same way, whatever. And in this particular case, yeah, that sort of voiceover flowery dialogue, or language, I should say, not really dialogue, uh, works. It just worked. But it could, you guys could have just as easily completely rewritten that too, and I would have there was no reason to. It was already so perfect. It fit so well. But I, I want to mention uh, before we get too far that this is um, directed by Dave Morgan, who is a longtime director from The Kingery. Um, and of course, stars Pete Milan, who has been the star of The Kingery for quite some, Yay! some time. Yay! Go Pete! And we have man! Kristen Bays as the dame. Who right? Uh, this was another thing when I first read this. I'm like, she's the one, the first voice that popped into my head. I'm like, she can get that sultry, uh, sort of damish tone. But then later, when she switches and she quote unquote gets woken up, and she, her voice takes on this harder edge, and yeah. I knew, I knew she could pull off both of those and nice. make it sound uh, authentic, genuine. No, it was um, again. It's difficult because obviously I'm going to like it. I'm designed to like my own work. But this isn't my own work. So the, the, the trick that they pulled off, and I think quite well, is I got turned into an audience member listening to this thing. 
it's difficult when you created the whole thing that it's based on. And I just, I won't say which one, but I've watched in the last week a couple of movies that are adapted from some fairly strong properties that exist as book series. And I had read the, uh, the negative reviews. The fans were like, this isn't the book. And I'm like, generally, I don't really care if that's the, the comments because they're not writing them. They're not being made for you. Like, there's a wider audience that's trying to be hit. A good example of that would be the Constant, Constantine movie where it should be John Constantine. But the fact that the people chose Keanu Reeves, set it in America, made it an American, told it an American story, and had elements of the original source material, it really got up a lot of people's backs. And I was like, but it's not for you. You all read the comics. You, by definition, are a tiny subset of the audience that's being chased here. Right. So while I would have loved to see Sean Bean play John, John Constantine, there's no reason he can't do it now. Right? And if you take the thing for what it actually, what it is and what it's trying to do, you can actually enjoy it. I watched these two movies again, which is Shadow of the Nameless, and I understood a criticism. In this case, I agreed with it. I was like, why did you do these books if you were going to do this with it? Like, you could have just done this. There's no reason to attach it to these, these yeah. great books. Then you might have done better because no one would have had that expectation going in, and they would have taken this thing just as itself. So it was an error. I think in this case, you guys get it right. The adaptation is just, your adaptation is dictated by the thing being adapted, which is always the way you're supposed to approach these things. I didn't tell them to do it this way. I was very, I mean, I was as lazy fair as I could be on this. Like, which was odd. I helped, but... That's um, the different thing, too, like from uh, Lingering Grief at Twilight, where we added those couple of scenes uh, with the the alien uh, species. In this one, we didn't add any scenes. Everything, I believe, I mean, it's been like six, eight months since we wrote them. It was more faithful because... I think this one is just basically almost a scene for scene straight through because we didn't really have to add anything to this one. Uh, It was all, like I said, this one was the easiest one to adapt. It was just like pull in everything scene by scene, character by character, and all the way through it, it sort of just lent itself to it really well. And I think like when you're adapting, it's like, yes, change it if you feel there's a good reason to If you to need to, it. right. But don't do it just to change it, or, or don't say, well, I have to add stuff in every one of It does feel like a lot of after adaptations, they change it just to change it. Right. Because, it feels, well, this is mine now, and I'm doing it my way. And you have to take it piece by piece and see which yeah. each piece needs. Some need more and some need less, and yes. that's okay. And Shawshank is a good example. Like, anyone who read Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption mm-hmm. and then saw that film will find themselves well at home. But there are many subtle differences, not the least of which is the casting of Morgan Freeman. Uh, one black man in an all-white prison in the South in the 30s. Yeah, that's <laughs> 40s, unbelievable. I don't know, guys. Did that really happen? Uh, but even more so, there's lots of little things in the story that are fantastic. And there's lots of things in the movie that are fantastic. And yeah. there's a lot of things that are not in both. Right? Oh, yeah. And yet, as a reader and a fan of the original work, you don't feel in any way that you got smacked you don't feel that the, the, the people who made the movie were somehow going, we can do it better. This is the way it should have been. It isn't like that. They were faithful to the spirit and the tone and the language and the, the vibe, what the story was trying to do. Right? And you can tell from the way these guys are talking about it when they talk about the other stuff that they're talking about here. That's really how they approached it. They went in with what is this thing trying to do versus the last thing they had, which is not the same. It doesn't have the same goals. So why would we treat it the same? Oh, anyway. I have to tell you this 
I know, I could talk to you about adaptation for like another hour. Yeah, you guys did a great job. I will say this, and it's weird because we're talking about this show, but you guys have practiced adapting. That's another thing. Like, one of the things that made me feel safe in your hands was you also worked for uh, Valiant and adapted Archer and Armstrong for them. One of their runs on Archer and Armstrong for them. Yes. And that is, you know, much more corporate. People can feel that way in the outside world because it's still a small shop. Mm -hmm. But you're two randos coming in, taking something that they, in theory, want to make movies and stuff out of it, in addition to their comics, and say, we can do this for you. And I listened to it. Right? Not just because it's you. I was going to listen to it anyway because it's Archer and Armstrong, and I like Archer and Armstrong. But you know how to adapt. You just do. So this is a good it's a good skill set for a working writer, certainly in uh, in Hollywood, quote unquote, uh, to have because you're not always going to be writing your own thing. You're often going to be jumping into work on an established piece, right? A show that's been going on for a while or a show that you did not create. It have nothing to do with the creation of except for writing episodes. Right, and you have to be able to fold your style into somebody else's style without being feeling like you're losing something. Right. Yes. And in this case, you guys—I mean, in every case, not just in my case—that's another thing. It isn't specific to me. It's not because we're pals off screen or off off the air. It's because this is how you approach the work, which I respect. Mr. Gray, you've got that look again. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Well, if you like. Uh, adaptations to audio, and if you like Pete Mylan's voice, he's in Archer and Armstrong. He is Armstrong. So what? That That's out. my man. Yeah. You can check that out if you like. Go Pete. Go Pete! And one thing I wanted to mention uh, that we kind of talked past before, but uh, the sound effects selection that Dave did for this um, with like the old-timey car doors and the car mm-hmm. engine over, under what? everything, it, was, it sounds so old, and I love it. I love I it. He really found good stuff. Go crazy! That's awesome. I let the dames looks turn That's the thing too. I don't. Oh yeah, and I'm sure you guys are. Known. I'm not. I don't care about movie soundtracks. I only notice them when they're crappy. <laughs> like all, all of my movie friends. You are notice like, bad sound work. But they they go off. Did you hear the soundtrack? This particular composer for this movie, like John Williams, and what was it? Mike Horner. Like I have nothing against them. I just don't notice it unless it's obtrusive, which it should not be. Right. Exactly. Um, and therefore, it takes me out of the movie. But literally, I would say ninety nine point two percent of the people I know who are in the industry are like crazy for soundtracks. But it is that those the, the difference of quality of a modern Camry versus a nineteen forties or fifties Ford car door opening and closing. Right. I would have never thought of that. But now that you say it, it adds to the overall reality. Well, right, because like a modern car door does not sound like the old ones which were heavier and like steel anything. and you know, yeah. they made a much more resonant sound. And so you gotta have the right stuff in there to get the the right I mean even here when he dialed on the phone, you heard the little rotary go. Right. Y'all kids don't even know what that is. What was that noise? What the hell was that happening? Operator. <laughs> Right. But yeah, as an aside, if you go through, and this is an interesting thing if you want to do it, if you go through the Archer and Armstrong audio with the comic, the director took elements of the visuals and put them in as audio. Okay. So like when they're on the street in New York and a car pulls up, like those things were added. Nice. Even if you don't, and even if it wasn't in the script. Same director? Yeah. Did you use the same director? Um, Dave Morgan, who directed uh, both episodes of The Dame, he directed episodes three and four of Archer Arms. Go Dave. Well played, sir. Well played. I'm a field agent. 
And so here um, we have uh, we had Darian Lindell popping in again as the operator, and Jesse Moore as Dyson. Yeah. Jesse. And uh, here you're kind of finally along with Gray, figuring out what the heck's going on. Yes. Oh, that's another thing. Um, we had conversations about this, and some of the stories there are there are specific character physical descriptions here and there. Uh, occasionally, the bridges would be like, "Can this person be of another gender?" Another ethnicity, different age, sometimes with another species. At least in one case, can they be an AI? Um, I was like, sure. <laughs> you know, because you can't be so precious with this stuff. It, you can't be a stickler for every fine detail as long as the story is being told. Also, it gives some people, if you want to go read the original, you're going to have some surprises. There's going to be things that are missing from your point of view if you only ever heard this. And there's going to be things that are, are, are added. That you're, oh, that's where that came from. Things like that. Right, and one of the, the things unique to this project that we hadn't really done before is that we used the same core of people for all four of these stories across all eight episodes. And so um, because of that, we didn't necessarily, you don't want to give ever the same people really big roles in all of them because then they'd have way too much li- too many lines and too many words. And also so, they might sound too similar. Right, so some story. people with supporting or smaller roles in one will be like the lead in the other. And um, so because of some of that, we had a... That was part of the reason we asked for some of the this set core of people. We were like, well, we have an extra a lady who could play this role. Is it okay if this role becomes a lady because she just could you right. know, handle yeah. these lines without... So. No worries. It was, it was a logistic thing that we hadn't really dealt with before. So it was an true. interesting way yeah. to approach it. Generally, um, I've, my feeling about this in all fiction, well, unless the story hinges upon the gender or the sexual sexuality or the ethnicity of the person... That kind of question shouldn't be a big deal. Right. Um, there are things, and I've gotten in trouble with this occasionally before, even though I love Idris Elba, I thought it was a weird thing to cast him as a Norse god. Like, I understood why the studio did that. That is weird. But from my point of view, I would not have done that. I would have come up with another great thing for Idris to do, because he's great. Um, on the other hand, um, they solved it by saying, these aren't the Norse gods. This is an alien species that a lot of people thought were gods a long time ago. Okay, solved. No right. more, no more problem. Um, on the other side, you can't have you can't have a white Black Panther because he's the Black Panther. Yeah, that wouldn't make any sense. And people always say, "Can you have a Black James Bond?" And I'm like, I aside from certain logistical things, where look, the Western world is largely white people, it would be a lot more difficult for a Black James Bond to blend into certain places. So you Fair. could change the kind of stories you could tell. With that, I thought it would have been great. That's fine, but it requires a slightly different head when you're writing that version of James Bond. You have oh to yeah, consider things. Um, but for the most part, gender swapping, ethno swapping, um, I would say even I hate to say preference because it isn't orientation swapping. Mm-hmm. Most stories aren't about that. So if you show a person come home and hug, he hugs his husband. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's not changing the story. Right. Do it. I don't care. You know. Sorry, it's the trigger. Phrase. Well, the thing I want to say here about um, that Kristen did when she switches over from the dame to her McGain personality, right? right? Um, but sort of. of course, it's not her. Right. You find out at the end. So what she's all along, she's only been pretending to be the dame, and then she pretends that the trigger <laughs> phrase switches <laughs> her over. Working, right? Yes. And I'm like, to yeah. pull that off. I mean, like, we put in the script, and I we told Kristen when she started, we're like, okay, so she's only pretending to be this, this day right. lady, and she, then she's pretending to be McGuade. Right. So, it, it, but, like, to pull that off, like, 
invoke. If you know, once you get to the end of the second episode and you know that's how it goes, and you go back and listen, you can kind of tell that that's what she's doing, and it's a, that's an amazing performance thing. That again, actors I, are make magic, and I can't do that. You're right, and again, these are subtleties, guys. Like they don't have to do that, right? Mm-hmm. We would all like the story. There are things that you're not consciously noticing going on, like the car door swing. That if you do go back and re-listen, like that thing was a surprise to me, but now that I'm hearing it again in my head, I'm like, oh wow, of course that's true. Mm-hmm. Would it have taken me out if they hadn't done that? If he had, if he had not chosen to find those old car doors, probably not. Does it make the listening better that he did do that? Absolutely. So, yeah, like in, to, with the phone, if he picked it up and it was all beep boop beep boop beep, that wouldn't he wouldn't fit with the world, right? So. Yeah. Or it'd just be one of those things where you're like, I just don't know about this. Yeah, like, you're like, you, you, you wouldn't get know. why. Yeah. I mean, this you has, hear a Camry door slam. This has you know, sci-fi mixed <laughs> in with it, much more so in the second episode, but it's it's fantastical sci-fi, not like modern. Right. There's no real science that corresponds right. to any of this. That's it's more insanity. fi. Or yeah. fantasy. Yeah. It's sci-fantasy, right? Because there's, no, there's no mechanism by which you can do any of this crap. That's true. Oh. <laughs> uh, and that's okay. No, All different we're kinds having of fun. It's more Star Wars than Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, that part I remember. I'm fuzzy. I'm not that fuzzy. Every once in a while. This is something though that I hadn't even noticed until Dave mentioned it uh, when he was turning the episodes in, and that this first episode has almost no sci-fi in it. There's a bit right. with, the, with the discussion, but like none of the sound effects. You don't really hear any of that. He's, he's, this was almost a straight, like, 1940s episode. It's true. And mm-hmm. so then he was very excited when he got to do the second one because he's like, now I get to play with the sci-fi sound effects with mm-hmm. the teleporter thing. Yeah, yeah, and all yeah. That. He, That's funny. This one was very grounded all the way through, which is kind of unusual for any of our shows. Our stuff all, always leaves generally pretty sci-fi heavy, and so there's a lot of sound sound work. Well, Fantastic. One stuff. of the fun things about writing this particular story is, one, I love those old film noir um, radio things. That's what got me into liking radio in the first okay. place. Um, my dad, uh, obviously, he's of age where he grew up and heard these things. Like, really, that was entertainment. It was TV for him. Right, yeah. But uh, for me, uh, I grew up in D.C., and on the weekends, our PBS audio station, a radio station, um, I guess NPR, I don't even know what it was, but uh, they would start at, basically at 6 o'clock on a Friday night straight through the weekend till 6 a.m. on Monday morning, it was whatever was on the radio in 1943. That's that cool. weekend. Wow. So I heard, I heard as a kid, cool. the same way my dad heard as a kid, The Shadow, Yours, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, wow. Box 13, all of these old things that like people 20, 20, 30 years older than me go, oh, I remember that show. My peers are like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. Right? So I got to organically in the same way as my dad, in a weird, crazy way, experience these things. So in order to write this, unconsciously, I wish I was the genius that it would sound like I but I didn't do it on purpose. It's just, I wanted to channel those kind of shows to write the story. So the mystery part of it is in there. It's just a different mystery than you think. Right. Right? And then turn it It's your flavor of mystery. It's a Jeff mystery. It's like, wait, what's going on? But this is madness. But... Um, but so, yeah, and I think that comes through. And it's probably why it made it easier on you guys in the sense that this just feels like what we're making rather than yeah. we have to do a lot to it. Because its inspiration was that. Like, ultimately, at the base of it, that's what its inspiration was.
was so nice. It's like bonding with your dad. It oh, really was. Oh, oh shut up. Featuring the voice talents of Pete Mylan as Harris Gray, Kristen Bays as the Dame, Jesse Moore as Dyson. Well, uh, we I just say that because I have nothing in common with my parents whatsoever, really? so I think it's really nice. Yeah. Susan Bridges as McGuinness. Wow. And Why do you think I've moved 2,000 wow. miles away from But so did I. I moved 3,000 miles away. Uh, <laughs> deep on this comedy. I know, right? I don't know if everyone wants to know these stories. <laughs> it's like therapy now. Yeah. I've said it a lot to many people. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. It's common knowledge. Directed by Dave Morgan. Produced by Pendant Productions. This production is copyright 2019, Jeffrey Thorne and Pendant Productions. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. Thanks for listening. So here's the thing we haven't really talked about yet is uh, the muse. Uh-huh. You, our, our sort of Rod Serling host. Yeah. I think a lot of these anthology shows, and when we decided this was going to be a cohesive anthology show, we mm-hmm. needed something to tie together. At the beginning of the Dreamnasium collection, there is this sort of made-up definition of what a Dreamnasium And so we Function. went back and forth about how would we use it. Mm-hmm. So we chose to, but the thing is that each... I can't do the. I don't know what Jordan Peele is doing with the Twilight Zone. I haven't seen it. Yet. Yeah, we haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen it yet either. So I don't know if he's taking the Rod Serling role. I know that in the past, uh, I feel like he is. I think so. They have I done like a, uh, a voiceover version with Burgess Meredith in one remake version, and then they had. Oh my God! He's going to go out of my head with the black actor. Was it Forrest Whitaker? Forrest Whitaker. Did it for yeah. a while? Uh, he uh, was. He was the Rod remake. Serling in one yeah. of the remake mm-hmm. version. So if Jordan Peele chooses to do that, it's certainly allowed. Personally, for me, I feel like that was a Rod Serling thing to do, and mm-hmm. everyone who tries to do it, at the best they can do, is sort of maybe seem like Rod, right? Right. And usually, it's so every, iconic. It's like it's, it's going to so always seem like you're his, just doing a fake thing. version of so it. So, in making I, I our own thing, we yeah. wanted something like that. And then I thought about the Outer Limits, which was great. Um, again, y'all kids don't know about these old shows, but um, the Outer Limits had this just a voice, and the computer, and the TV screen would start doing weird stuff. It's like, you, we control the vertical. We control the horizontal. We're going to take you from the inner mind to the outer oh, limits. Oh, that was that show. That was the outer limits. Oh, but what it did was it set a tone. So you knew when you went in. It wasn't the Twilight Zone. Uh-huh. Because that was all that sort of introspective, maybe scary. This is more weird 50s science fiction and horror that we were going to do. So we're showing you that with the opening. So the, the muse, what became the muse, had to be that. And since these episodes are different, the stories are different in tone and approach, we had to um, have this great voice. But also, the actual definition of gymnasium, I think, is different slightly. There's two different ones. There's two different ones. Right. So, we did that to keep it connected together as a unit, because it's all one mind that sort of created the source material. But give you a little bit of a hint that, oh, this isn't exactly like that story you just sat through. This one's going to be off this over here in a different direction. So, that's that's where the muse came from. Plus, I love muses. I know. You talk about your muse all the time. Well, she's great. On social media. She's great. Time and everything. I have to say that. And in your blogs. <laughs> She's great. <laughs> that girl is great. So we have new characters appearing here. We, yes. I mean, we have Butch, who was a, in a, the first episode a little bit, but that's nice. Philip Weber. And we have Maxie Sparks, Maxie! played by uh, Perry Whittle. And uh, but it's he's not Maxie. It's McGuane. Right. Again, so this he's is actually another thing. McGuane. When I cast him, I'm like, here's who you're really playing, and what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it was an interesting thing, this episode, with explaining to actors who they really were. Was it a pain when you got down to it, that part of it? Because that's in the story, is pretty straightforward. But having to navigate it in an audio version, it, 
Did it seem too hokey? I was always worried that no, that part was... No, it didn't feel bit... hokey. I think the only thing was making sure that it would become clear through dialogue who was who at which point because right. we didn't have like a, a narrator to explain that right yeah we had discussions about like does this work is this enough is this line enough do you know what i'm talking about I you know who's you, really here who's really it, there. but yeah. i know the actual story so i'm not a really good filter for that that makes right. it harder yeah okay. right but i mean the audience will tell us <laughs> Also, I love the guys back home. That's not me, guys. These guys are at the... Oh, that tell the boys back Butch, home. yeah. I he love that. Thing. He says it like two or three times. But it's great. It's such a great sort of character clue, a verbal character clue that disappears. Um, remember, uh, uh editor once told us in a sort of weird master class he was giving um, on back in the days of AOL, uh, Dean Wesley Smith is a master. Is his name. Fantastic writer, very large with his... His gift gives, gives free advice to the, to the, to the, pen, the penitents. Um, and one of the things he did was he said the words, you should always write he said and she said after things. Um, you should take it away for dramatic effect right? when you're writing a prose story. And a lot of us were like, that's a, oh, really? Every single time? And there are a million reasons for why, which I won't go into here. But also he said it's invisible. The audience doesn't see it. They see the absence of it. So if, there's, if they're going to notice the absence of it, you lost me again. choose the places you, the writer, should choose those places where they notice the absence of it right. rather than have them randomly doing it throughout. And I was like, all right, writer who's more successful and knows what he's doing. It doesn't make sense to me, but I'll try it. I've done it that way ever since. But this is what you guys did, a sort of a version of that in audio drama form, which is I know Butch just from that line. Nothing else he says tells me more than that. I always say to the boys back home, okay, gotcha. You know, it's great. And I, I, I take my hat off to you because I did not write that. You guys wrote that. And uh, it's absolutely on voice. Absolutely on voice. Right. I mean, I don't know how much Butch even talks. Does he? Uh, Butch after the first scene. doesn't even have a name. Right. He's just there's, like, there's like two thugs that yeah. show up in the original. We combined right. it to one. Yeah. Just, just to make it a make real. Make it easier. Yeah. Out of town buddies. And so then you became put. Yeah. So this is a, this is what I mean about adaptation, guys. It's really about story as whole, and what is the story, the baseline story, what's it trying to do, and then if there are things that can't translate, how do we how do we make it work? Well, and it's also an audio key, like clue to the audience because if you have too many bit characters, people are like, "Well, who just right. said that? Or who is who? Or am I supposed to know who you that have to person work in is?" Too many or not? Exactly. Yeah, not to tell them and also, are. these guys in this particular yeah. story talk in that weird 1940s movie style. Right. So you got these gravelly guys all talking in the same kind of corkscrew way, and, uh-huh. and all of a sudden it's like, "Wait, who said what now? Exactly. Which one is which?" And they, that can be a right? challenge. And you can't have right. them constantly identify. Them. Well, I, as I always say to myself, Maxi Sparks. I feel this way about X. Yep. You know, you can't, nobody talks. Even in those movies, nobody talks. <laughs> I wanted to uh, mention, too, um, in that last scene where we finally get to see the, the little step disc, I think it's yeah, called, where Maxie teleports step across disc. the room, um, that you can't visually show how far someone's moving in audio. And we didn't want to just put dialogue, what are you doing on the other side of the room? And so the way Dave worked that was to 
pan Maxi almost all the way to one side and drop the volume. So when you're listening, suddenly he sounds like he's far away. And that's really right. cool. That's really a way good. that you can work things through in audio, like using the format and the medium yeah. to your advantage. And But, I mean, that might not come across if you're listening in the car, but yeah. my, it's hard to... Do you have stereo? You should be I listening on headphones. you got to hear the great work yeah, our directors really do. are doing. There's all a couple these, of things that I lost when I played it out, but when I listened to it with headphones on. Always use your headphones. Yeah. yeah. Or get a really awesome sound system, which I don't... I'm not telling you to buy that. So headphones are way cheaper. Oh, well. Nice dig that you can get on this. More like a well-armed... I will say that this script, I think it was, had uh, a lot of mispronunciations of McGuane. We had to get a lot of retakes from our actors because... And Chassis. Yeah. And Chassis, yes. The two of yeah, them. I, I, didn't, I didn't help you. But, you know, that's, that's a thing. That is a consideration when you're writing something that's just to be read. Doesn't matter, right? Whatever the whatever the reader thinks the name is is doesn't right. matter. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, part of that was also uh, my fault because I remember I sent I was going to blame you. Right? I sent you an email asking like, how do you pronounce McGuane? How do you pronounce Chassis? Yeah. And then I told the actors, but I like only told Pete, and I forgot that there were other characters that also said those names, yes. and then <laughs> nothing matched up, and so we had to get retakes, and it was oh, welcome so, to Hollywood. Yeah. Well, that was fun. It we happens. learned from our mistakes. People are actually making these things, and people make errors. And also, the writer makes up crazy ass words that look great on the page. Yeah, there are a lot of weird names in this one. Yeah, so. but don't necessarily <laughs> trip off the tongue as easily as you, yeah. as you would like. And you have to be free. You have to tell people who own source material can be awfully precious. I've heard stories about novelists who've had their work translated. They have every reason to be in a. Nervous about Hollywood, you know, quote unquote, butchering their stuff. But on another level, if the person, like, was like Frank Darabont, seemed like a perfect partner for Stephen King because he clearly was not there to butcher anything. Mm -hmm. So at a certain point, you can lean back and go, let Frank drive. He's fine with it. I trust, even if I don't, even if I would not have made that change, I can trust that he did it for the right reasons. I'm making this mine, you know, like that. And in this case, I could I could very easily be like, look, you know, and instead what it is, is it serves the story. Everything that serves the story is good. Everything that doesn't is bad. That's it. Ah, quit squirming. Hey, give me the wolf. So here we have our first appearance of Dr. Belanoff, played by Joe J. Thomas. Named after my friend, Adam Belanoff. Oh, uh, uh, real names. Uh, oh, up. I often put. I often. What do they call those things? They're Tuckerisms. I always. I've murdered many a friend in a story. <laughs> you put it like that. There are many names of people that have gotten horribly killed in my stories, <laughs> and I mean horribly, eaten by tentacle monsters, blown out of airlocks. It's horrible. Well, that that was the end of of Cranzetti, Jack Call. He yeah. appears in the scene, and then he dies in the scene. Yeah, so he, he shows Jack. up and he's gone. Sorry, Jack. Um, <laughs> But you can listen to Jack on the Kimberly. He's on many of our shows. He's the lead in Active Radio, Active Radio. What? How dare you? You're not the boss of me. Oh, and you're welcome. Thank you. Here, use the rest of that rope to tie up Kimberly. It was fun coming up with these weird names, though, because one of the reasons, aside from McGuane and Gray, even Chassis, aside from McGuane and Gray, which are regular sort of human Names. Remember, these things take place in alternate versions of our Earth. So this isn't L.A. I forget what I called it, but it, it's like L.A., mm -hmm. right. but it has a name that's similar to L.A. but isn't L.A. 
right? Like the name of the ocean isn't the Pacific Ocean. It's something similar to the Pacific Ocean. So there's no human being named Cranzetti. Right? I, I, I don't think there's a real last name of Cranzetti. Um, I don't know. There might be a made-up one. But like, um, what was the other thing? Uh, like I, I call it the City of Angels or something, but it isn't like that. It's something else. Um, but uh, there's all kinds of references to that. Uh, uh, they call the, the, the planet's not even called Earth. It's called Terra Firma. Right. right. Things like that. Um, all that is to, from the prose version, the prose story version, to let you know you're not in Kansas. Mm-hmm. Right. It feels like Kansas. It looks a little like Kansas. It ain't Kansas. Right. Uh, oh, right. It's not It's not Venice. Right. I, la- I named it something else. It's not Venice, California. Yeah. It's one of the other ones. Right. It's been too long since we yeah. wrote the script, and now I don't remember. I don't even remember. <laughs> it's There's been so a while. Many, so many words. So many words. Production takes a long time, you guys. But... Um, but all of that was the, the the reading equivalent of what you guys do audible with this, uh, trying to set the audience in a scene. And again, it goes back to the ad- the adapter having to figure a way to translate things that read well, but don't really you can't really do anything with it in in a uh, in, in the audio version. And also, these names are crazy. Like that, I didn't help you. That's fine. <laughs> you know, so that's fine. Uh, I mean, we've run into this issue on other things. Even on our, our Shakespeare show, a lot of times Shakespeare names are really weird, and so you send out pronunciation guides to sure. the cast, and we should have done that with this one, uh, with these shows. I should have recorded one so that everyone had the same basic, to, you know, to work from. That would have been awesome. Hindsight 2020, you know. Love it. I mean, you were just talking about... That would have really helped us out. Whoops. Also, this was meant to be the beginning of something. A lot of my stories, even though they end, and they're clearly a complete story... Yeah. We were going to see Jassy again. We were going to see these two people again. And I just never got around to writing more. Kind of implies that by the end. You know, that last voiceover uh, from Gray. Kind of, next time I'll be ready. Next time, baby. It's going to be on. But maybe, you know, if there's more Dreamnasium, we could get a continuation. We can always revisit. And it'll be interesting to see what the fans really like. Which ones? Which ones? Because normally I don't. How do I say this and not offend anyone? Normally, I don't care what you guys think in terms of what I'm going to write next. Sure. Right? Because it's not. It's not a really, good thing to have as a writer. As a writer, you have to write you what, have to where let you're it go. But also, there's no mechanism. How would I even know that? How right. would I even get that vibe back from you? This is really the first time where we can look at. You know, I like all of these worlds and, and I've built a giant world around them. So if people really love this, We'll know from the stars you leave us on iTunes. That's right. Reviews. Reviews. That uh, you did. And I will be very happy to sit down and write a short story for these two to adapt. Or even better, maybe just write an episode. Like, we don't know. Like, this is really us sort of taking a ship out to the sea and seeing where we go. Uh, But yeah, it'll be interesting to see which ones really spark with people and which ones are like, we like it, but we don't need to see more. You've been played. This whole kidnapping thing was just a grift so we could get the step disc back. In this one, um, I think the most difficult work Dave probably had to do sound effects wise is when uh, Chassie gets dissolved, evaporated, whatever <laughs> happens to her. I'm like, how do you do that? It's sound effect. You've got to make someone sound like they're disintegrating. That's so. where we're like, director, good luck. <laughs> That's a director opportunity. That's right. Enjoy. He knew the risks. Using me? What was that? I sing. 
I love to screw up the life of every Harris Gray I know. I like that that chassis just goes around from universe to universe, screwing with Grays. Yeah. She just hates him so much. She just hates him. <laughs> well, what was that partnership like? Holy right? crap. That's like if Robin grew up and went, you know what? <laughs> Every time I see anyone with a fat t-shirt on, I'm going to own them. Now see, that was some lovely sour. That was Belenoff going, yeah. Bye-bye, yeah. Adam. Sci-fi guns. How many of my friends have I killed? <laughs> I killed Christine Boylan in a story. Wow. I killed John Rogers in a story. Oh, my goodness. You only kill special people. Oh, well, if you want to get killed, let me know. I can murder the hell out of people. I would, that's a good list to be on. All right. <laughs> don't, don't, don't be shocked if you show up getting decapitated by a dragon or something. Now, that's there, a way to go. There, oh, you don't get clean, happy death, my friend. You get death, death. Oh, my God. Well, no, Christine's character would not like a G, but... Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely tuckerize people that murder them. I, I, a couple of writer friends do it. It's fine. Plus, I don't have to worry about bringing them back. There you go. Rotary phone, children. They, they had a dial. It spun. And that's an what, that's operator. And an operator. Yeah, and even though we use the operator in this story as also our sort of contact with our futuristic society, in the old right. days, you hit a button and an operator, what number are we as? Real live real human being said, hi, how you doing? What yeah. you want to do? And then by hand would literally take the yep. phone jack <laughs> and move one end cable to another another jack so you could talk. you literally making a connection by yep. hand. Amazing. Sad. You think Incredible. I, I don't think I even really realized until right now, but this is kind of matrixy. They go out via the phone. They just disappear. Yeah. I mean, they just—it's. I envision it more, sort of weird, sort of not spiritual, but like soul energy teleportation. Like the body stays behind, right? You just jump out of it. Mm -hmm. In the Matrix, everything sort of is in the phone. Um, but like whoever you were inhabiting, yeah, you just leave that body behind. Um, what are they like afterward? Do they I, remember you know, what happened? I it depends on the story. Things to explore. It depends on the, it always depended on the story. But I would like to think they don't because you would think you'd gone insane for two days if you remembered all of that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> you don't remember anything. Why two days I, have passed. That's yeah. worse too. Well, at least you could think I had a, I went on a bender. I got drunk or something. Right. I mean, in this case, like, wait, I was an extra dimensional cop and a partner that was in a man's body? Like, what? A female partner in a man's body? What the hell was that? You know, I need to check myself in somewhere. <laughs> this is worrisome. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of the Daymore a Tesseract, which I think that, again, that is a pretty spoilery title once you know, but it doesn't tell you ahead of time. You don't spoil it, but once you know, no. you know. And you're like, oh, that's what it... Okay, it's giving away the twist. Whatever. Okay. It's fine. It's great. Better than fine. Part two. Featuring the voice talent. Well, enjoy the next one, and we'll be back in a few weeks with your next commentary. That's right. Awesome. Awesome. Joe J. Thomas as Belinoff. Jack Kalk as Cranzetti. Philip Weber as Butch. Jesse Moore as Dyson. Darian Lindell as the operator. Marty Brangle as the bartender. Catherine Pride as the computer voice, and Melissa Autumn Hearn as the muse. Written by Jeffrey and Susan Bridges based on the original short story, The Dame Wore a Tesseract by Jeffrey Thorne. Dreamasium theme by Vincent Morrison. Music by Josh Molan at thetoonpeddler.com. Directed by Dave Morgan. Produced by Pendant Productions. 
This production is copyright 2019, Jeffrey Thorne and Pendant Productions. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. Thanks for listening.